0: I suddenly realised, I remember saying, Michael is not coming home. I couldn't go to the door dead, but I knew Michael wasn't coming home.
1: In the early hours of February the 14th, 1981, 48 young people died when fire engulfed the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin he said "Places uh, place is on fire we're not going to get everybody out tell the officer to send absolutely
0: everything that you have
1: nobody saw it coming if they did it was already too late
2: just people were screaming outside you could hear them screaming
1: 846 people came through the doors that night 44 would never come out 4 more died in hospital it was one of Ireland's most catastrophic tragedies.
0: And then everything went black, and everybody started squealing and roaring, and and you could see the flames. Do you know what I mean? And everybody then—it was just like wild animals.
1: Getting out was a lottery.
0: There was a state play, and bars on the windows, so we we couldn't get out.
1: Only fate decided who lived, and who died. For some survivors, they never really got out. And for the families left behind, their souls were taken with their kids inside that building.
3: Those that got
0: out of the building are out of hell, but we've lived in hell.
1: They were left at the mercy of an uncaring state.
0: I want to know why the state interfered. I want questions answered.
1: This is the story of the Stardust tragedy. Brought to you by the Irish Sun.
5: Uh, big shout-out, Dan. He got this done. Um, literally over the line, two-fight deal. Uh, Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua um, next year. One problem. i just got to smash Deontay. If you look at Christy Kinnaghan Sr., you know, he must be kicking himself that he built this multi-billion-pound business and within a generation, you know, they say the next generation always destroys what the previous one made. Daniel Kinnahan has almost single-handedly destroyed it.
1: Malachy Steenson is a criminologist and solicitor from East Wall in Dublin.
5: Now, the younger folk seems to be more involved in the logistical, practical sides of business, whereas Daniel has much more of an ego problem. He wanted to be seen as the man with MTK and all of that, you know. Up till the Regency, in ordinary people's minds, Daniel Killingham was unknown, you know. And then the regency happens, or the killing of Gary Hutch, which led to it. And a lot of it is because of ego and power. And probably coked out of half the time. And they want that lavish lifestyle. I think he lives in the notoriety of, I'm the biggest drug dealer in the world. And I think that's part of their downfall.
1: Had Daniel and Christopher Kinahan Jr. been born into a different family, their paths in life would have certainly been different. Neither possessed the rootless nature that their dad exuded from an early age. As Christie made the gradual evolution from a low-key fraudster to Ireland's most violent drug baron, it seems he'd always planned on one day handing over his empire to the kids. This week's episode of The Kinahans is going to be a little different from our first two. It's a story about interlinked families, and more importantly, it's a story about their children. You'll know most of their names. Daniel and Christopher Jr., Fat Freddie Thompson, and his two cousins David and Liam Byrne. And last, but not least, Gary Hutch. Perhaps the man who will have the greatest effect on what was to come. Right now, two of these men are dead. One is serving a life sentence for murder. And two are on the run. Possibly somewhere in Africa or the Middle East. But what strange events brought us here?
3: He uh, was pocketing money from Kinahan cartel business, and if you did that, then there was only one uh, outcome, and that would be uh, to be executed.
1: The Kinahans is brought to you by The Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. There's another family we're going to focus on in this episode. That's Annette's family. They aren't from gang royalty or have any roots in criminality. They're a regular working-class household in West Dublin whose lives have been torn apart by the Irish drugs trade. In the context of the Kinnehan's, the hutches of the Burns, their story is one of many that's often left untold. Annette speaks from the sitting room of her home. In the room, photos of kids and grandchildren adorn the walls. There, she shows me photos of her family. First, her two daughters, Michelle and Mia. And then John. Her beloved son.
6: Well, John is a second born child and um, he was a happy, loving child. He was mischievous.
1: She smiles when asked to give a few examples of funny and memorable moments he had as a child.
6: First of all, when he was younger, I used to have to put a packed lunch in his cot because he would wake up hungry during the night. And he'd wake up, have his sandwiches and go back to sleep, mental. But he got up one night and he had four oranges, three yogurts and half a bottle of milk of magnesia because he thought he might get indigestion. <laughs> that's, that's the flavour of John.
1: When John was just five, the family were hit with heartbreak for the first time.
6: My husband had a brain hemorrhage and it was devastating, as you can imagine. The older ones knew what they'd lost, do you know what I mean? My husband went in an ambulance and they never seen him again. That was it because he was shifted and where he was in the hospital, there was no visiting, I was the only one allowed because he had brain surgery. And it had a huge effect on the kids, as you can imagine.
1: For a few years, things got really tough for the family. Not just the despair and grief they were feeling, but Annette was now on a single income, trying to raise three young children.
6: We would no insurance when my husband died, so everything was just doom and gloom for a good while because to sort out, like, everything, life just changed completely. So that was difficult, Um, but we moved on and kind of, we were closer in the end.
1: Throughout his teenage years, John seemed to take the loss harder than the rest of the family. Annette convinced him to visit a grief counsellor.
6: The counsellor said that John has not accepted his father's death in any way. When John was 21, he tried to slit his wrists because he was convinced that his dad would walk through the door. Unrational, but again, we went counselling and the counsellor said it was just that he could not accept that his dad was dead. And that is the trauma that I feel led to John going down the road he did.
1: As boys growing up in the Oliver Bond flats, Daniel and Christopher Jr. didn't see much of their dad. As they became teenagers, Christie was either basing his business abroad or was banged up behind bars. But he tried to stay in touch when he could. Owen Conlon is co-author of the cartel.
7: Christy split from uh, their mother, Jean Boylan, when the kids were quite young, but he appears to have stayed in contact with the children. The relationship didn't seem to be that strained. Um, it seemed to be pleasant enough. And when the kids got to their, their late teens, they were looking to emulate their father.
1: Daniel was young, good-looking and cocky by nature. He did well with girls his age, but always seemed to have an eye on joining the family business. People in the area were familiar with their father's exploits, and the Kinahan name was beginning to carry some weight. Daniel was keen to use this to his advantage. Christopher, the younger brother, was more timid. He did well in school, and was described as a more reserved figure compared to his father and older brother. His business acumen would serve the cartel well in the future.
7: They looked up to him, particularly Daniel. He wanted to get in on his his father's operation, and he got his big chance in his early 20s when Christie was again sent down for that second stretch.
1: Christie was still behind bars in Port Leash after the arrest at his father's funeral. But luckily for the cartel, John Cunningham was temporarily running the show from Amsterdam. Not just that, business was booming, both on the streets of Dublin and in the Dutch capital. Daniel and Christopher Jr. had established themselves as two of the main suppliers in Dublin and had created a thriving network of buyers and criminal associates. The boys had done their father proud and were becoming integral parts of the rising cartel. Stephen Breen is crime editor of The Irish Sun.
3: The two sons, they're young at that stage, they're in their early 20s, and they're growing up in the Oliver Bond complex, but it's not just their association with their father and they know what he's involved in. Um, They're also building relationships with other young criminals. Irish
1: crime is hugely interlinked and familial bonds that stretch across decades still have a huge say in who calls the shots. Daniel and Christopher Jr. would spend their early 20s establishing connections with other young dealers. And some of these alliances would have drastic consequences for Irish gangland in the years to come. None more important than their friendship with Gary Hutch.
3: Yeah, but Gary Hutch uh, was the, the nephew of Jerry the Monk Hutch. Gary Hutch came from strong criminal pedigree, you know, even his surname gave him a certain degree of infamy in the north inner city. He grew up as a hard man. He got involved in car theft at, as a young age. As he progressed through his criminal career, he also got involved in uh, tiger kidnappings and and armed robberies.
1: While his uncle Jerry was firmly anti-drugs. Gary wasn't cut from the same cloth. He worked hand in hand with the Kinahan boys, particularly Daniel, who supplied him with cocaine to distribute through his hometown of the North Inner City.
2: The older style criminals were of a different class. The ones coming up were more violent, um, more money hungry, and had learned from the mistakes of those who went before them. And that's what makes drug dealers difficult.
1: At the turn of the millennium, Gary was young, ambitious and ruthless in the search of wealth. The hutch mantle had been passed on. And any notion of Gary operating as an ordinary decent criminal was quickly fading.
3: He was also using that time as he built up a a fearsome reputation for violence to forge links And close connections with people like Freddie Thompson from the South Inner City.
1: Liberty's born Freddie Thompson, or Fat Freddie as he's often known, is as vicious as they come. He was a remarkable boxer from a young age and was as unpredictable inside the ring as outside on the streets. He'd started out his criminal career in gangs related to John Gilligan. But as that group crumbled in the wake of Veronica Gearn's murder, Thompson was able to establish himself as a main player in his own right. Through both dealing and socialising, he built close friendships and connections with Gary Hutch and the two Kinahan boys. He controlled a portion of the South Inner City market, and to keep buyers and sellers on their toes, he'd often dish out severe and bloody beatings to those who inconvenienced him.
7: He was a he was a known quantity, he was involved in drug trafficking um, and he had a reputation for violence, so he was somebody who could be useful to the Kenahans.
1: Thompson first became well known for his role in the vicious Crumlin-Drymna feud that spanned much of the early 2000s. Claiming 16 lives in total, Fat Freddy quickly became a household name across the country. Slightly lesser known were Freddy's two cousins, Liam and David Byrne. They graduated from young street thugs to feared cartel members in a matter of years.
3: David Byrne was a lieutenant, often gathering uh, money from uh, people who owed debts in the um, south inner city. Liam Byrne, effectively as well, was running his own uh, organised crime gang, which was an extension of the Cunningham group, with the Cunningham leadership being based overseas.
1: While it was clear Christie and John Cunningham were still in command the younger generation were eager to move up the ranks and cement their own foothold. To put it simply, the Kinahans, the Hutches, Thompson and the Burns, all would have worked together while also controlling their own operations. Everyone worked as one, but a certain freedom was afforded, as long as nobody tried to cut the other one out. John O'Driscoll is former Assistant Commissioner of the Gardaí, who retired last year.
7: Organised crime groups are are, are very fluid uh, in any event. Uh, and, you know, a, a person may be a member of one organised crime group today and a, a different one next week, uh, which may be a, a separate entity or an offshoot of the original organised crime group, or may in fact uh, have an involvement uh, in a number of organised crime groups at the one time.
1: Seamus Boland is Detective Chief Superintendent of the Garda's Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. It's all about money. So if somebody has has access to a, I would say a route to smuggle commodity into Ireland, whether that's drugs, firearms. Or, or people smuggling, uh, because because these people engage in, in 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 human trafficking as well. The commodity uh, can be irrelevant,
7: so th- they will all work with each other and cooperate with each other. So the the sort of split that uh, uh, and division of organised crime groups that we witness now would not have applied uh, at an earlier time. Uh, and many of those who would be in conflict with each other now and over recent years uh, would have worked hand in hand at an earlier time.
1: The early 2000s were a turbulent time for the younger crew. Gary was jailed for six years in 2001 for a botched jewellery heist out in Malahide. Freddie Thompson and David Byrne were waging war across South Dublin against Trimla's Brian Radigan and the rest of his gang. While Liam Byrne was beginning a four-year stretch for an assault on ex-League of Ireland footballer Trevor Donnelly. It wouldn't be long, though, until all of the men would reunite, this time far away from the streets of Summerhill and Crumlin. And the long-term consequences would be brutal and deadly. Things started to get difficult between Annette and John around the time of his 18th birthday. She began to smell the scent of hash in his clothes.
6: They never allowed smoking in the house. And I could smell and I was, you know, asking him and he's denying it.
1: Annette knew that a couple of joints and experimentation at that age was relatively normal but she had a good feeling something was wrong.
6: He never had any money and he was helping on the bread van, so he had money, but he never had any money, so they were all telltale signs that something wasn't right.
1: John entered into a relationship, which eased some of Annette's worries about her son. He seemed happy again, but it wasn't to last long.
6: His first girlfriend, you know, he was madly in love with, and they broke up. And things spiraled very quick after that. Turkish delight bars come with tinfoil on them, on the inside, right? And I was finding all these Turkish delight bars in the fridge with no paper on them. And I said to Mia, What's that all about? And she said, I don't know. And I said, Like, it's something, there's something not right. So when he was out one day, we went up and we turned his room upside down and we found that he was smoking heroin. The black paper was there, the spoon was there, under his mattress, and this tin foil. So that's how I knew.
1: That evening, Annette confronted him about the drugs
6: he said he didn't use in the house I said I don't care where you use it's what you're doing to yourself this is so dangerous So he said no once you're not using the needle madam I'll be okay I said look we need to get this sorted and he said he would
1: things didn't get better Annette began to notice some of her items around the house were missing
6: you'd go to look for say a camera or a bit of jewellery it's gone it's in I'm not sure I left that there, and then you start questioning yourself. Like, I sure I had fifty euros in my purse. So I really thought I was going round the twist, and I didn't know where to go with all this because I didn't want to go to the police because it's the addict they concentrate on, and I didn't want them known to the police as being an addict.
1: The more things that went missing. The more frustrated Annette got with John's new behaviour. Everything he did was so out of character. The son she raised was slowly slipping away.
6: It was like I had a different version of my son. I didn't have my son. You could see he wasn't the same. He was guarded in everything he said, he wasn't affectionate anymore, there was no fun, there was just this grump. You know, and he wasn't, even his personal hygiene wasn't the same. You're looking at him, his teeth are rotten. He's a shadow of himself. It's hard to look at your child disintegrate before you. Plus, I said to him, son, I buried your father. I don't want to bury you. So he said, "I'll, I'll sort myself out, mom. I swear I'll sort myself out.
1: John spent the next few years in and out of addiction. The family did everything they could to get him clean. He spent time in rehab. He lived with his sister Mia and her partner. But the heroine had him in a chokehold throughout his 20s.
6: He said to me, I have to get out of double, ma'am, because he'd no friends. Nobody wants to be around a junkie, as they call them, or a drug addict. I hate that word, but they don't because. Their parents don't want them with them. He couldn't reinstate himself into normal life because people didn't trust him, obviously, because of of his history. So he said to me, I'm going to move. My husband was from the country, and he said, I'm going to go down the country and get a place to live and start over. So my daughter and I'd go down, we'd visit, we'd go shopping, go for something to eat, like everything was going great.
1: John met a girl online and they started to see each other. The woman, though, was a former addict and it wasn't long before both of them began using again.
6: And I could see he was like a skeleton. Like, when I'd ring him, he'd be sick, he'd have the flu or he wasn't well and I could see the deterioration and I said to him, like, he said, but ma'am, I'm not. I said, John, look, Let's not play this game, okay? You're definitely using. And I said, she's definitely using.
1: Not before long, Annette found out that John's partner was pregnant. She was sick with worry about the baby's condition. Terrified of what might happen, she made contact with the hospital.
6: I said, you know, you have a patient and she's on drugs. And I said... If the child has been taken, I want to take because we know was a boy and you know, they to look into my background and all the rest was so bad time. The child was born. He was born addicted, unfortunately. Um, he was in the NICU for quite a while and uh, heart monitors. He was on cancer medication for the shakes. It was really horrible. But he came through and then my daughter and I went and collected him from the hospital.
1: As Christmas approached, Annette hoped that somehow the arrival of the baby might change things for the couple.
6: He was here, and we were having dinner up at Mia's house. Like, he had two pairs of tracksuit bottoms on under the jeans to make himself look normal. He had three jumpers on him, and he still looked like a skeleton. I said it to him, your body is breaking down. And he said, I know, Mamo. i I'll talk myself out. I said, okay. And then we went up to meals for Christmas and we had Christmas and we came back down here and I went to get fresh milk and bread. You know the usual after the shop when I came, I knew the two of them had done something. And I lost it with them because the baby was in the house. I said like Jesus Christ, like I can't do this anymore. And I said, right, get the time of the bus. So I rang my son-in-law and they said, you have to come and take these pair. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, I'll talk later, just take them. And I was the 3rd of January. And the 9th of January, John died.
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
3: Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: In late 2007, Christy Kinahan sat in the office space of his Marbella villa. He was working out logistics for a drug shipment of cocaine into the UK. He smirked as he glanced outside his window to the pool and garden adjacent. Freddie Thompson was nearly finished cutting the villa's grass as sweat poured down his red, sunburnt face. He was one of a number of young Dublin criminals that had recently made the Costa del Sol their home. For Freddie, it was a big change from dishing out hidings up and down Mead Street. But Christy Kinahan, his new boss, treated him with nothing but contempt. Attempt. He'd often make him carry out menial tasks as a way of stamping his own authority on the cartel's new members Knowing his place and eager to please Freddie got on with the job at hand With Daniel and Christopher however Freddie was a key part of their gang He was deeply involved in organising coke shipments back to Ireland and worked as a local enforcer if they ever needed a job done. He also kept the gang entertained in the paparazzi bar, which had become their local in Marbella. The Kinahan cartel had been through a fortuitous couple of years since making the decision to move to the Costa del Sol. Business was good. The cocaine market was booming, and southern Spain was the place to be.
2: Criminals tend to move to the area of least resistance. They left Ireland. Most of the higher criminals, that didn't mean that they were no longer involved in Ireland. They just physically removed themselves and their wealth out of the country.
1: Geographically, the move opened up more opportunities to increase the gangs' supply lines for practically every drug on the market. Guy Hedgeco is a broadcast journalist who covers Spain for the BBC.
4: For criminals who are involved in the drug trade, the Costa del Sol is just across the Gibraltar Strait from Morocco, which is one of the, you know, the biggest hashish producers in the world. Um, and also, um, it's a sort of crossroads with the Atlantic. and You get a lot of traffic bringing drugs in from Latin America, from the Atlantic, through the, the Gibraltar Strait to that area. So in that sense, it's very attractive as well. And also there's this idea that it's a very international community. I think that draws quite a lot of criminals as well, because there's a feeling that someone with an international profile can just blend in there. If you go down to the Costa del Sol and you're a foreigner, if you're Irish, for example, you're not going to stick out being Irish because there are so many Irish people there already. So there are a range of of factors which make it attractive uh, for someone who works in that criminal world.
1: Back in the villa, Thompson let Christie know that he was finished with the grass and asked him if he could finish off the pool in the morning. Christie nodded and sent him on his way. Although Freddie had been loyal to the cartel, something about him spelled trouble for the Dapper Dawn. Since John Cunningham's arrest after the war taps in Holland, the gang had taken a very strict approach towards discretion while in public.
7: And this was anathema to Freddie Thompson, who was somebody who to them seemed like a bit of an idiot, and they treated him somewhat disrespectfully uh, compared to, to other criminals. They didn't trust him, and they viewed him to a certain degree as disposable.
1: Gary Hutch, the monk's nephew, had also decided to make the costa his home. In recent years he'd gotten so cozy with the Kinahan boys he was treated as Daniel's right-hand
7: man. It was really one big gang at that point. you had the Kinnahans based out in Spain. they were sending the, the drugs back and then you had the, the members of the Hutch gang on the ground who were selling the drugs for them. So there was, it was really one integrated gang. Gary Hutch was I suppose the go-between man for that setup. He was the man who could who could link both ends of the gang.
1: Although Hutch was closer to the two sons, Christy never warmed to him.
3: I recall Gary Hutch being tasked with making a six-hour journey by car from Malaga to Madrid Airport to pick Christy Kinahan up. He had been away on business, but when Gary Hutch arrived, Christy Kinahan wasn't there.
1: Kinahan got news that Gary was going to for him home and decided he'd make his own way back. He couldn't bear the thought of being trapped in a car with them for that amount of time. Although Gary was a successful and ruthless criminal, he was also quick to rile people up the wrong way. He smoked a hefty amount of dope, and most of his conversations revolved around the drug itself. Christie felt he lacked sophistication.
3: That sort of behaviour showed that, obviously, Christie Kinnon was the man in control... And the people beneath him, people like Gary Hutch, were very much playing second fiddle to him and everything was about him. Despite sometimes being taken down a few pegs,
1: the move to the Costa was an incredibly fun time for the cartel's newest members. The younger crew worked hard, but they also knew how to party. They lived completely different lifestyles from some of the Irish gangsters that had come
3: before them. Uh, we we know that Gary Hutch uh, often used prostitutes. We know that um, there there was a lot of uh, partying going on at that time. You, you had people like Gary Hutch and Freddie Thompson living in a flat together.
1: The gang spent a lot of their time in the paparazzi, a bar run by Peter Fatso Mitchell, one of the original members of John Gilligan's gang.
7: They they were all out there together. They were all involved in the same uh, business. They didn't trust outsiders for, for necessary reasons. So they would party together, they would take drugs together, they'd go drinking together, and they were all in the same firmament.
1: Times were good for all involved. But as the old saying goes, everything in life is temporary. After Christmas, Annette's row with John left her with mixed emotions. Anger, frustration, worry and even some guilt. But those feelings weren't new. On Wednesday the 9th of January at around 7pm she was getting John's baby ready for bed as she was changing his clothes. A knock came at the door. Outside were two
6: Gardie. And first I look at their hands to see had they a warrant for John because he would, had driving offences, never in trouble for drugs. He never robbed anyone for drugs. He never broke into houses, none of that. If John owed money for drugs, we paid for it. So I thought, oh, he must have been driving a car or something. And they would no paper. And all this is going through your head, and they'd say, "Can we speak to you?" And I said, "Yeah, come in." And he was crawling around the floor here, and never forget. It. And they said to me, "Can we speak to you in private?" And I'm looking at the child in private. So I said, "Yeah." So we went out to the kitchen, and he said, um, "Your son." And I said, "What's he done now?" And he said, "Like he's dead." And I said, couldn't. And they said, very sorry to have to tell you, son passed away today. He was found in the bathroom with a penny black. He'd gone in at half past one and he was found at half five with a needle in his arm. Dead. That was the end of him. But he lives down the country. He hasn't touched the needle, and I know he hadn't touched the needle because we talked, and he said, No, I'm only smoking. He thought that was an achievement. He's like, No, no, you're mistaken. My son lives down the country. He said, No. He had a letter or something. And it's definitely him, and you'd have to go to the morgue in the morning to identify the remains.
1: Annette first went to break the news to Michelle.
6: And I went in and she said, Oh, hi, Mum, I wasn't expecting it. And then she looked at the two police behind me. And she said, What's wrong? I told her. I said, We have to go over and tell Mia. Because Mia and John were so close. Even though she's younger than him, she was like his big sister. And she has a heart condition. So I had spoken to her husband and said like I'm going to be coming over and it's really bad news so I need you to be there and be ready so he said what's wrong I said look I'll be there in a minute so we went over and the minute I walked in and the two police she just collapsed she said he's gone and I said she-
1: The next morning, the family drove to the mortuary to identify the remains.
6: So we were waiting and waiting and they didn't know if we'd be allowed to see the remains or not. So I said to the girls, I will go in first and if it's John, I will come out and you can go in. But I said, please, I'm hoping that this is not John. I also knew that if the three of us identified a man who was him that they'd have to go to the coroner's court and I didn't want that because I didn't want them to hear whatever was going to come out. So anyway, unfortunately, when then it was him. But your world just stops. I'll never forget the ice, these eyelashes. Because obviously he's been in a freezer. And you're looking. At this child that you loved so much. That you tried so hard to save. Time and time again. And it's all over. There's nothing you can do through. I'd have to tell these two outside. That their brother is gone.
7: John Cunningham had gone down in Holland precisely because he was too careless on the phone. They were determined that this was not going to happen again.
1: The cartel were also keen to raise their game and become a more professional outfit in terms of avoidance and counterintelligence. They'd created a strict system of dumping burner phones after limited use and would pick up new ones at various locations across Marbella.
7: They were looking at the time at what was an emerging thing of uh, pretty good privacy phones which were just starting to emerge in the market. These were the ones which, uh, the the encrypted phones which became so popular with criminals down the line. And on a physical level, the gang were attempting to prevent any uh, following, any tailing by the police um, and to flush out any tails that were there.
1: They began being trained by former Special Forces soldiers who now ran private security companies on the Costa.
7: The gang would be sent out um, to engage in sort of lifelike um, exercises in counter-surveillance and surveillance where they had to both follow um, police uh, on the ground who were unaware that they were being followed and not be spotted. And at the same time, try and follow each other and the person being followed would have to lose the tail while the person who was doing the following would have to maintain it
1: the gang would buy wigs and they would hide in bushes
7: but at times it it really degenerated into farce they would ring back and ask things like yo know, is a wig with uh, green stripes uh, okay and clearly it wasn't i mean uh, wearing a black wig with green stripes was going to mark you out to anybody who was paying any attention to your method of dress there was also one incident where one of the gang uh, dressed as a woman uh, to carry out this uh, one of these surveillance operations and the whole thing was blown because they were passing a small child who noticed that the member of the gang was in drag and shouted to his mother mummy that man is a woman so it did break down that's not to say the training was completely unsuccessful
1: they became extremely adept at avoiding police tales and creating diversions to help weapons and drug shipments run smoothly.
7: They would drive at very, very high speeds. You'd be talking about 140 kilometres, 160 kilometres per hour. And they would have a, a sort of a system where they had a lead car who would be several kilometres apart. They would be in constant phone contact All the time, and the lead car up front would would have the job of uh, if they came across any routine police checkpoints, he would be there to draw the uh, the police away from the the secondary car, which was the, the one that had the real merchandise on board. You know, when you're dealing with criminals, there's such a level of paranoia between
2: them. A lot of them use coke, and it is very easy to be best friends one day. And to be plotting to kill somebody the next day. That's the way they operate.
1: Michael describes it as a pendulum effect.
2: They're very violent. And when you mix violence, paranoia and cocaine, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's and that's what happens. And sometimes they don't need a reason to shoot people. Sometimes they have a, a misguided belief somebody has done something wrong on them. And... Um, a lot of feuds start like that but here and abroad people are just paranoid
1: Paranoia and betrayal would become constant themes among the younger gang During the vicious Crumlin-Drimna feud Freddie Thompson enlisted the help of his close friend Paddy Doyle to act as an enforcer and a hitman to try and eliminate some of Brian Radigan's top men He was vicious and loyal I had no problems going to war for Freddie.
7: He had carried out a number of murders there, but he had had to flee Ireland because one of those murders he carried out in Clontarf, he screwed up by not burning out the getaway car properly. So he was a wanted man.
1: Paddy Doyle moved to the Costa and slotted into the continental lifestyle with ease. Thompson, Hutch and Doyle would spend their mornings in the gym. Take care of any business in the afternoon, and then unwind most evenings in the paparazzi with the rest of the gang. Not all of the younger crew were fans of him, though.
7: He was a big man, he was uh, six foot three or six foot four, he was used to throwing his weight around, he would get involved in various sorts of scrapes with other criminals. Um, ...when he was on Nights Out... ...and he was somebody who the Kenhans ...didn't really like or want... ...as part of their their group... ...but at the same time... ...because he was friendly with uh, Freddie Thompson... ...and Gary Hutch... ...he was was part of that uh, generation... ...and it was difficult for them to separate... ...him from
3: uh, his peers. When he was in Spain... ...Pally Doyle was seen as reckless... ...forging his own links... ...with other organised criminals... Paddy Doyle was was greedy and also extremely violent.
1: Doyle had been doing some side business with a 43-year-old English dealer named Simon Cowmeadow. Cowmeadow was on the run from the UK having been caught with over 100,000 ecstasy tablets near Essex in 2007. With Doyle working as enforcer, the pair made several trips to Amsterdam to carry out lucrative business on a number of occasions. All was going well for their joint operation, until a 2007 incident took place that would have drastic consequences. To this day, it's still slightly unclear what happened. But both Doyle and Cowmeadow were blamed for the disappearance of half a million euro worth of Christy Kenan's money as history had shown he was not a man you wanted to cross
3: he uh, was pocketing money from Kinnaghan cartel business and if you did that then there was only one uh, outcome and that would be uh, to be executed
7: so Meadow was killed in Amsterdam and he was thrown out of a moving car shot through the eye
1: Meadow was killed in November 2007 That Christmas Paddy Doyle slept with one eye open, fearing he might be next. But as the year drew to a close and January 2008 came and went, his fear began to subside and he figured he was in the clear over the missing cash. On the 4th of February 2008, Doyle, Thompson and Hutch were driving back from the gym, to the complex that Hutch and Doyle were living in together. Their black BMW was slowly navigating the windy, narrow roads before pulling up to a crossroads on the residential street of Mayorana. As they were waiting for the lights to turn green, a car slowly pulled up beside the SUV. Five shots blasted through the passenger window.
7: Doyle got out and ran off and the the hitman followed him down that laneway.
1: More shots rang out. Halfway down the lane, Doyle dropped to his knees. He'd been hit. The gunman approached again and stood over him as he pleaded for mercy. ...finished off with two bullets to the back of the head. Police intelligence would later suggest... ...that those close to Doyle... ...were well aware of what grim fate awaited him.
7: Gary Hutch, police believe at the time... ...was aware that um, Doyle was going to be targeted and Freddie Thompson as well, they believe, knew that this was pending. So it was another indication of the dog-eat-dog world of gangland. I mean, these were guys who were palling around together on nights out. Ostensibly, they were friends, close buddies who had their back. But when it came to it, they sacrificed him.
1: When we talk about gangland... An organised crime. Families such as Annette's are often the ones who are left out of the picture. The ones society stigmatise and forget about.
6: When you look at a child, and as I have my grandchild living with me, because both his parents were in active addiction, there's no point in going around this, this is how it is inactive addiction when he was born and they weren't allowed to have him. And you look at the problems that child has as a result of being born addicted. And then you look at the life that the likes of the Kinahan gang have and their lavish life in Dubai. And I'm struggling here to get the services that this child needs. To deal with my... Huge pain of losing my child. And they are going on flash holidays. And the injustice of that sits with you.
1: As the years went by, Annette couldn't get over the loss of her son. It's still as raw and emotional as ever. But she felt she needed perspective try and help her heal.
6: I went back to school and done a course on alcohol and drug addiction because I had to understand how I couldn't save my son. I had to understand why he could not stay clean. And I realised they can get clean standing on their head. They can do their cold turkey, they can do their sickness. It's afterwards. It's when the self-loathing comes in for the things they've done to feed their habit. It's when they have no social abilities to integrate into society, when they can't get a job. There's nothing there for them. And see this money cab gets, where does it go? I feel, in my opinion, that the children of drug addicts that have died from overdoses should be funded by the money that the state gets. That there should be something. I could take that child to Disneyland. I could give him good memories instead of having to tell him when he's a bit older that his father died of a drug overdose. And yes, I'll still have to tell him or he'll have had a good life. I think it's so unjust that these people live in houses that I could only dream of and I'm not jealous of them. But it's blood money. They're building their lives on the bones of our children. Literally on the bones of our children. It's just wrong. It's so wrong. His potential is gone. We'll never know what he could have been, what he could have achieved. He wasn't a stupid child. He wanted to be a pilot at one stage. He had dreams. We had dreams for him. When I looked in that cot when that child was born, do you think that I envisage for you that you die in a filthy toilet with an needle in your arm?
1: Next time on the Kinnahans.
7: So, relations between himself and Daniel Kinnan were were breaking down. Hutch would have known that um, Kinnahan had ripped off several other drug dealers with whom he'd been involved. So he feared the same thing happening to him.
5: Walked into the place where I was staying and then just from behind the car, someone come out and... and They fired three, three bullets. Yeah. I got hit twice. But then they ran... The Kinahans was brought
1: to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, and produced by Urban Media. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review. Help us get the word out.